You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right, well, we're going to start off this morning with a little audience participation. And so you extroverts are going to love it. You introverts are like, that's it. I'm shutting down. I'm out of here. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you, or if you are online, get your thumbs ready for the comment thread. I want you to think about a popular song with love in the title. And Miles has some, like, love music for us. Here we go. I'll give you about 30 seconds. Popular song with love in the title. Tell the person next to you. Those of you online, go ahead and type it in the comment thread. Matt's waiting for you. quick on that one. It was like you were waiting for this. All right. Super cool. Some of you, like, any, any, like, what's love got to do with it? Tina Turner? Okay, maybe. Love Hurts? Nazareth, 1974? No? All You Need Is Love? You had to know that one was coming in here. Thank you. Beatles? When it comes to love, everybody's got something to say. It's super popular. If you want to have fun, hop on Google and top in 100 greatest love songs. You're going to know most of them. Everybody's got something to say when it comes to love. But the truth is, like you know, real love, at least as Jesus defines it, is not always so neat and tidy. It's much tougher. In fact, you can make the case that in our fracturing world, Loving like Jesus calls us to love is getting tougher and tougher almost by the day. How do I love the lost without affirming lostness? Can you disagree with somebody without being disagreeable? How do you love somebody when they just don't deserve it? (laughs) Well, if you've ever asked those questions, the good news is that you are in great company. God's Word addresses those questions and gives us some really practical help. So today is week three in our 10-week summer teaching series through the book of 1 John, That You May Know. So if you're curious about how to love in a world gone crazy, today is going to be for you. So today, here's where we're going. Three big chunks, just going to let you know right up front. First, we're going to talk about, from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 7, why love is so important for the church. Why is love so important? Then, we're going to zoom up and take a look at what love actually is. Anybody get what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. There's a generation that that's your, your thing, right? What is love biblically defined? And then lastly, we're going to talk about, okay, how do I actually do this? How? So why, what, and how do you do it? So let's get right to it. We've got a ton of hay to bale this morning. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to take a look right in verse 7. Here's what John says. He says, Beloved, 
I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Thanks, John, for that. Which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So a few quick observations right up front. First, John shifts gears in how he addresses the audience. Remember last week what he called them, this church in Ephesus? He called them little children, right? Which is right for John. We said this was fitting because he's like a father to them in age, in authority, and then also in aspiration. He's older than most of them. He walked with Jesus, and he has these fatherly hopes for them. We talked about that last week. He said, I'm writing to you, little children, so that you won't sin. Remember that? That sounds like the words of a great godly father or a great godly grandfather. But here, did you catch how he addresses them right at the top of verse 7? What's he call them? Beloved. Beloved. This is the closest possible earthly or word for an earthly friendship. Paul calls Timothy his beloved son, Philemon his beloved fellow worker. James and Peter both use it in their addresses to the churches that they wrote to. It carries with it this idea of like the closest possible partnership that you're almost related, like you're kin to each other. Like I would take a bullet for you, beloved. This is fitting for John. You might remember the story about how when John was too old to walk, but not too old to preach, he would be carried from house to house and just tell the church, love each other, love each other. This was the last sermon that he gave in the last years of his life. Selfless love is John's obsession. That's the first detail. Second detail is John's apparent contradiction. Did you catch it? Where he says, this thing I'm going to tell you about, this is not new. It's old. But it's also, it's also new. And you're like, John, what is it here? On the face of things, it sounds like he's contradicting himself. Like, which is it, John? Are you rehashing some old teaching, just pulling a sermon from the file? Because we haven't remembered it? Or is this something brand new? What's actually happening here, John? So before we understand what he's saying, we've got to understand why he's saying it. So remember, John is writing to the church in first century Ephesus. First century Ephesus loved new teaching. New teaching was like catnip for them, right? First century Ephesus had all these street corners where would-be prophets and preachers would stand up and claim all these new insights that they got from the gods, all these great things that would they push it out into your life. You can think about Main Street Ephesus like TMZ, Twitter, and National Enquirer all rolled into one. They loved new teaching. And so what John's saying here is he's going, hey, um, what I'm telling you about, it's not like that. I'm not like these pop guys just looking for a following. I'm actually rooting my teaching in something older, something with authority, something with rootedness. We're going to get to that in a minute. That's how it's old. But how is it new? 
He says, well, it is new. What's that mean? Did you ever stumble across your high school yearbook? Or like, you know, you look through, like, for those of you that are married, your wedding photo album or your wedding video, you kind of blow off the, the dust of the yearbook you leave through there, and you're met with this kind of, like, interesting reaction of, like, nostalgia and also renewal, and you're like, oh. That's kind of what John is doing here. He's blowing the dust off of an old commandment so that it shines like new. It's a commandment. It's a word that they had heard before in this church, but it needed a little polish, needed a little dusting off. Well, what's the command? What's the teaching that he's trying to get at here? We're at this point in 1 John where I want to make sure we understand something absolutely crystal clearly. Everything that follows in the book of 1 John rests on words that Jesus said in the last hours of his life. There's a couple of verses in John 13. You don't have to turn there. John 13 is like a linchpin that holds the rest of this book together. John 13 is the last hours of Jesus' life. Here's what's going on. It's 60 years earlier from where they are in Ephesus today. It's a Thursday night in Jerusalem. Hours before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room for the Last Supper. John is seated on Jesus' right-hand side where you would seat your best friend at a dinner like that. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead. And here's what he says. This is John 13, verse 33. Jesus, with his friends, says this. Little children. That's interesting. Little children, yet a little while, while I'm with you, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, whoa. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, fast forward 60 years to first century Ephesus. You see what John's doing? John's being really intentional. He's pulling out this dusty command from this dimly lit upper room 60 years earlier. He's blowing off the dust and he's saying, guys, this is what I want for you. This is the command that we can never become too far tethered from. This is very, very important. That's the second detail in this text. Third detail we need to see. Last week we said that John is kind of like a jeweler, right? John takes like a diamond. He takes an idea and then he just gets it in his head and he turns it. And every time he turns it, it catches a new ray of sunlight. And every time it catches a new ray of sunlight, it becomes more and more rich and beautiful and complex and jaw-dropping. That's kind of what he does with the rest of this text. Because now that he's got this idea out there to love each other, now he picks up the diamond and he turns it. Take a look again in verse 9. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So this is somebody who says, I'm a Christian. I'm in. I follow Jesus. I'm your church-going, Bible-studying, signing-up-for-everything guy. Hates his brother, still in darkness. So he turns the diamond again, and he says, well, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So now he's talking about a different kind of person shown by different set of actions. 
And then he turns the diamond back again, and he says, well, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. But now let's look a little closer. Walks in the darkness, does not know where he's going, because the darkness has done what? It's blinded his eyes. What's he saying? John's naming something that a lot of us can't quite put our finger on most days. Love for God is shown in love for others. It's really that simple. You know you love God when you find yourself showing love to others. Now, before we get to what love is, it's the second chunk of our time together, we need to sit here for a minute. Because what he's saying is, if you say you're a Christian, how you treat other people needs to reflect that. So let's line up these last couple of weeks in 1 John. Week one, God is light. He's holy. In him, there is no darkness at all. Remember week one, we pulled out our cell phones in here and we lit up the room with the little flashlight. Week two, it's the Christian's job then to take that light into the world, which is dark and lost and sinful and hopeless. Week three here, John says something that's a little startling. He says, some Christians are like flashlights without batteries. And they're shining them around. They can't understand why their world doesn't change. Some Christians are like candles that have never been lit. You think you're lighting your world and you're not. And you're bumping into things and you wonder why. You're hurting yourself and you can't understand it. You're tired of seeing relationships fail and hopes fall. You're not trying to. It's not your intention you don't mean to, but despite your best attempts, you feel like you're wandering in a dark room just trying to figure things out. And if you bump into one more thing, you're going to lose it. You're not lighting your world like you want. You can barely see in front of your face. And John, pastor, brother, father, poet, says, I want something better for you. John wants us to understand the idea, and here it is. Love for God is shown in love for others. So that's why love is so important, because our world is so dark. And you are God's plan A for reaching it. There is no plan B. That's why it's so important. But we've got to get to the second chunk. What is love? Right? If there's ever been a word that has been recaptured by a fallen culture, it's that word love. What does love mean biblically? Because here's the tension. We all need to agree on something here. The tension is not what does Scripture say. The tension is what does Scripture mean? Because I could rip that thing wildly out of context and twist it to mean a billion and one different things. What does it mean to really love like John is encouraging us to do here? So before we talk about what love is, we're going to talk about what it isn't. So you may not know this, but most human relationships fall into one of six categories. And we're going to take a look at these. For those of you who are note takers, we're going to, take a, we're going to put a spectrum up here on the screen. And so you can kind of doodle in your, in your notebook if you want. Here's this first kind of relationship. Let's show this one. Tolerance. Okay, that'd be maybe like click four on this spectrum. Tolerance. This means like, hey, you stay on your side of the fence. I'm going to stay on mine. It's okay. I tolerate you. So it's kind of like peaceful coexistence. And incidentally, it's a, it's a word that our world loves. 
We just need to tolerate people. Just tolerate them. It's okay. Tolerate. Right? This is Robert Frost when he says, like, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> just going to tolerate you. Just you know, you kind of do your thing. I'll do mine. Let's go back a little bit here. Take a look at the next one. Civility. This is maybe click five. This is one step further. This is like, I'm not just going to tolerate you and like, you know, you're there. I'm going to be civil to you. I'm going to show you some mutual respect, right? We're going to agree, kind of. We're just going to be civil. Like Arthur Brooks, uh, he wrote a phenomenal book recently, and he said, if I said that my wife and I were civil, you would said we need marriage counseling. <laughs> civil is not the right word. So let's keep going back further here. You've got tolerance. You've got civility. Then you've got recognition, now, to recognize somebody is like, hey, I got you. It's like one of these. You see somebody driving down the road or you see your neighbor and you go, just a quick little, and I mean that with all my heart, right? Hi. This is the guy at the end of the off-ramp that you wish wasn't there. <laughs> Seriously. And I recognize you. I see you as a person. But I'd really prefer that you weren't there. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the priest and the Levite who sees this guy on the other side of the road, and they go, I'm going to kind of cross over here to avoid that. I recognize there's humanity in you, but I don't want to address it. I don't really want to, I don't want to, mm. I recognize you, but that's about where it stops. Go one click further to, toward the dark is you've got hate. Now, hate is when recognition just kind of like drifts a little bit and you go, now, not only do I wish you were not there, I'm actually angry at you because of what you believe, because of what you think, because of what life has done to you. Not only do I prefer that you're not there, I prefer that you don't exist. That's what hate is. Go one click further and you've got apathy. Apathy is feeling nothing at all for somebody. No amount of pain in your story could cause me to respond to you. I feel nothing. Now, this is what human relationships can be. So let's go all the way over to this end, and you find you have love. So a couple quick observations on this. First, hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. We think that hate and love are opposites. Not really. To get to a point where you feel absolutely nothing for another human being is the worst curse that you could bring upon yourself. And it's the opposite of what we are talking about here. And I worry, just for me, that since our world has recently presented us with so many opportunities to feel hate for the other side, whatever that means for you, that we will eventually find ourselves feeling nothing for the other side, whatever that means. Because you can't sit with hate very long. It's not a very sustainable emotion. And so to preserve yourself from that strong feeling of animosity, we'll just kind of numb ourselves. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Second observation about this before we define what love actually is, is tolerance and civility, these words that our world likes, those are too low aspirations for Christians. <laughs> you don't just get to tolerate people and be civil to people. Those are too low those virtues, tolerance and civility and coexistence that find their way on the bumper stickers, those are too little for us. That's not what Jesus calls us to do. To love somebody, at least how Jesus calls us to love them, is much deeper than that. And so what is love? Let me give you this concise definition for our text this morning. And this is movable. I know someone's going to push back and go, well, so this is my workable definition. Here you go. Love is pursuing God's best 
for someone else at great cost to myself. Love is pursuing God's best for someone else at great cost to myself. Now let's break this apart a little bit. Love is pursuit. That means it doesn't happen automatically or by inertia, right? If you're married for more than five minutes, you know that. Any relationship takes work. And if I'm pursuing, that means that I'm actually moving. I put effort behind this thing. I was talking with somebody the other day, and we were saying in our world, the way our world has become, the basics of life, like friendship and like love and relationship, it feels like a muscle that has kind of atrophied, doesn't it? Have you noticed it's harder to work right now? Like, it feels like work to reach out. It feels like work to care for people these days because it's just harder. But that's what love is. It is a pursuit. It's not just sitting back. Well, what are we pursuing? We're pursuing God's best. Now, this is where our definition and the world's definition would immediately diverge. I'm not pursuing what I think is best for you, what I think you should be, hope, or dream, or do. I'm not pursuing what you think is best for you, what you think you should hope, dream, or do, or become. I'm pursuing God's best for you. Well, how do I find that? Here's the principle. God's word reveals God's best for God's people. God's word reveals God's best for God's people. And so when we take all of our cues for humanity from God's word, we will perceive and pursue God's best. Sometimes... God's best is just giving an encouraging word to somebody who needs it. Sometimes pursuing God's best means bringing gospel truths to conversations. Sometimes God's best means accountability. That's a little harder. It means confrontation. If you're a parent, you get that. Sometimes God's best means saying no. But God's best always points to God's word and therefore God's sufficiency. How far? Until it hurts? Sometimes. God's best for someone else at great cost to myself. I'll talk about this just quickly. How many of you know that love, like real love, costs you? Sometimes that cost can be measured in dollar signs, literally. Sometimes that cost can be measured in punches you don't throw. That cost can be measured in words you don't say. That cost can be measured in energy that is spent. If you're a parent, right, sometimes that cost can be measured in lost sleep. I'm discovering that doesn't stop just when they're like two and three. (laughs) Love costs us. Sometimes your cost is measured in your reputation being drugged through the mud. Jesus understood what that is. So if you're really looking for a great way to understand this, I want you to write down Romans 5, 8. It's not going to show up on the screen. I just want to read it to you because it's one of my favorite verses. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know how much God loves you? God demonstrates it. He says, Here's, you want to see it? Here it is, full on. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned our stuff up, Christ died for us. Not after we figured everything out, Christ died. No, 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 no. While you were a rebel, while you were an enemy of God, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Pursuing God's best for you 
at great cost to himself. So that's what love is. How do I do that? A lot easier said than done, isn't it? And you can feel things kind of tightening up a little bit. How do you actually do that? Here's what I believe. I believe that in our world where love has been so twisted and corrupted or neglected and abandoned, one of the biggest gifts that the church can give the world is to show how to actually love other people. I think our world is waiting for it. And we have this as our opportunity. So how do you do it? So we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or so. I want to give you six tips for loving difficult people. Because <laughs> here's the thing. When John says it, he says, look, love them. I think you already know that. I think you know that's what God wants for you. How do you do that? <laughs> six tips for loving difficult people. Here we go. Tip number one, look in the mirror. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to start off a little hard. Tip number one, look in the mirror. One of my favorite hymns, um, it's a poem written by a 17-year-old man named Samuel Crossman in 1664. Here are the opening lines. He says, my, my song is love unknown. My Savior's love for me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. But who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die. I love that. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be, but who am I? Like, guys, that's us. That's the gospel. One of the keys to loving difficult people is to realize I'm one. I'm a difficult person. The idea that God could love me is the best starting ground for understanding how to love difficult people. Why? Because no one deserves love. <laughs> Nobody. It never comes out right. Never. And the minute we are humbled by the fact that a holy God could love me, that's when I'm free to love other people. An idea that um, has come to my mind a lot recently, and God's been using this in my life, um, it's a quote that I didn't come up with. I wish I did because it's brilliant. But it says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. What that means is nobody comes with any advantages. Nobody's any better off. You are just as much in need of grace as the person you can't stand. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The only person who was ever actually completely worthy of love was Jesus, and he traded all that up to be treated like garbage for your sake. Pursuing God's best for you at great cost to himself. Looking in the mirror means that you will only freely love other people when you understand how much God loves you. And that's where this has to start. So that's tip number one. Tip number two, check your heart. Check your heart. Here's what I mean by this. Think about the difficult people in your life that God's calling you to love. Could be a coworker who's antagonistic to your faith. Could be a neighbor who's just driving you nuts. Could be a family member or a spouse that's like being distant right now and like there's just some friction, there's some tension there. And it's just difficult to pursue God's best for this person. There is a big difference between I am loving you so that and I am loving you because. Follow me on this. 
I'm loving you so that you'll change. We don't really say it that way, but we kind of mean it. I'm loving this person so they'll come to church. I'm loving this person so that it'll go easier for me. I'm loving this person so that we can avoid conflict. We don't really say it like that. But sometimes that's what goes on in our heads. I'm loving you so that, which means that you're not loving from a place of freedom or security. You're loving from a place of reciprocity, which means I'm expecting a little kickback here. I'm loving you for a change. I'm loving you for some kind of an exchange of some kind. Now, here's why that's dangerous. Because when that person inevitably doesn't deliver on your unspoken aspiration for them, it becomes really easy to justify stop loving them, doesn't it? And so those things out there, those are great aspirations to hope somebody will come to Jesus, to hope somebody will change, to hope this is out there. Those are great aspirations. They're terrible motivations. (laughs) So let's say something better. Instead of I love you so that, let's say I love you because. I love you because God loves you. I love you because you're an image bearer. I love you, I can love you, because Jesus does. I can be generous because what that switch does, it's a little mental switch in your head. What that switch does is it roots my decision to love you deeper than how you treat me, deeper than what I get back from you deeper than what words you say or don't say. And so it doesn't matter what you do, I'm choosing to love you no matter what. Love is actually a choice that has very little to do with you and me and has a whole lot to do with me and Jesus. Really get this, is to check your heart. You'll only love somebody freely when you are securely resting in the love of God. So that's this idea behind check your heart. Tip number three, play the long game. Play the long game. Here's what I mean by this. Christians know something that the rest of the world doesn't. Here it is. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. Think about that. Everybody you know is going to spend eternity somewhere. This is creedally embedded in who we are as Christians. Now, that reality should give you two things. It should give you perspective, and it should give you purpose. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. That gives me perspective and it gives me purpose. Um, funeral planning. Somebody that uh, they and their family had died and they're walking through some stuff. And like you know, I don't mean to be trite or flippant here, but funerals and weddings tend to resurface some stuff that had been buried for a long time. And so this person let me know. They said, um, hey, there's this other family member. They've been really distant and detached and actually hurtful in their detachment. And they want to be involved uh, in, in whatever way, what do you think I should do? Great question. So here's my response. A month from now, you're not going to be thinking about a funeral. That's going to be done. But if you are kind now, you may open the door to a relationship later. And you may see restoration. Now, I know what just happened in everybody's head, because I'm just like you. Well, I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want to be taken advantage of here. Come on, you tell me to play the long game? How much? I don't know. <laughs> Here's my word on that. I know we don't want to be taken advantage of as people, and I know that we don't want to be a doormat. My experience is most of the time I want to draw that line a whole lot quicker than what Jesus may want me to. 
my idea of being taken advantage of and being a doormat may be very different than what Jesus' is. And so my word for you on this is pray about it, but grit your teeth, love other people, let love be your mission. When you're playing the long game, you can handle unfair criticism because you've got perspective. When you're playing the long game, you can handle harsh words. You've got purpose. When you're playing the long game, you can walk your way through unkind intentions. Like, I'm not just getting through this funeral just because I'll, just, just so we can get through it. I'm doing it because your eternity is at stake. I'm not being nice to you just because, like, it's easier for me to do that, but because Jesus loves you and I want to show you that. I'm not being generous, kind, or whatever, because that's just me, but because I live for and serve Jesus. Practically, this is that great way of taking Jesus' prayer of let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. Treat people now with an eye toward eternity. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. You know what we're not going to be doing in eternity? What we're not going to be doing in heaven? rehashing harsh words that somebody said to us once upon a time and their position on whatever, doesn't matter. Will not matter in eternity. Play the long game. It's just better. Doesn't mean you won't be taken advantage of. You will. Doesn't mean life is going to be neat and tidy. It won't be. Doesn't mean you won't get hurt. In fact, it probably means just the opposite, which leads to tip number four. Tip number four for loving difficult people is to adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. I'm a sucker for a good quote. You guys know that. And so there's one I came across in preparation for this message this week that I thought I'd share with you. It says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. (laughs) I love that. Funny because it's true. So I want to talk to the idealists in the room for a minute. You are my people. You know, you why can't we all just get along, people? All you need is love, people. Got your attention. <laughs> Here's why loving others is so hard. Because everybody in this room has loved and lost. Everybody in this room has been disappointed, you've been hurt, you've reached out in love, and you've gotten repaid with a slap. And some of you in here this morning or watching online, you are fighting against this inner voice that says, that's it, I'm out, I've loved too much, I've done it one too many times, I've gotten burned, see ya, I'm out. Let me just respond first and say that is a completely understandable reaction to a fallen world. You don't need to beat yourself up for feeling that way. Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. That is a completely normal, rational reaction to living in a fallen world. But before you shut the valve off, let me tell you that there is a cost. Here's what C.S. Lewis would say about this cost. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you will be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. What's he saying? He's right in line with John. When John says to love, to open yourself up to a life of love, like Jesus calls you to, is to open yourself up to the risk of pain. I don't think we talk about that enough as a church. Just go, be loving, go. No, this is hard. No way around it. But the alternative risks something much, much greater inhumanity. Numbness. Given the choice between feeling pain and feeling nothing, I would still choose pain. Why? Because in my pain, I understand my God's provision. Here's how I'd sum up this point. Reach out in love, expect to be hurt, love anyway, and in so doing, find God who is your perfect provision and satisfaction. Jesus never promised to excuse us from suffering. He only promised to preserve us through it. Tip number five. This is probably, in my mind, the most practical. Listen for stories. Listen for stories. I had a friend, we were talking the other day about empathy and, and, and like church culture in these days. And um, we were just talking about church life. And he just says, gosh, it's so hard to be connected these days. I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. Here's what he said. He said, there's no one you wouldn't love if you knew their story. I went, oh. There's no one you wouldn't love if you knew their story. I believe there's real power in that idea, and I believe that Jesus did too, which is why he's so drawn to people with the messy stories, the banged-up stories, the tough stories, the tragedies, the hurt ones. As we go through life, you know this, we get banged up. Nobody gets, gets out of life dent-free. <laughs> We've all got dents and scratches, missing parts and pieces, as we go through our lives, our lives tell those stories by what we do and what we don't do, by what we say, by what we don't say, by what we run toward and by what we run away from. Here's what I've found, and maybe you found the same thing, is if you listen to people, really listen, they will give you clues to their stories, the painful parts, the tough parts, the stuff they're embarrassed about, the stuff they can't quite get a finger on. This is really hard because it starts with a word that doesn't come easy for me. Listen. <laughs> really hard for those of us who think with our mouths open. <laughs> Listen for people's stories. It's what Jesus did. When you go back and look at the Gospels over and over and over again, one of the greatest foundations of how Jesus loved people is he just created a spot and a story just flourished. And he listened and then he brought gospel to that place. What a remarkable opportunity for the church. Last tip, loving difficult people means asking for help. I said this a little bit ago, that loving others is hard. Why is that? Because people are frustrating. Because people are selfish. Because we're sinners. <laughs> so before you enter into that conversation, send that text. Make that decision. Ask God to help you. I'm serious. Pray. Pray and just say, God, right now, I don't want to love this person like you do. I just want to be mad at him. And God, I realize that's wrong. Will you help me? And he will. He does. This is your father who wants to help you. 
God has a lot of experience loving difficult people. <laughs> so by now you probably noticed that all of these tips for loving difficult people aren't about changing them. They're about changing me. Why is that? Because if I wait for difficult people in my life to show themselves as more worthy of my love, I am not representing the heart of Christ. Love is not a church growth principle. Love is not a relationship tactic to make family reunions more tolerable. Love is about gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. I'm doing this whether or not you deserve it. I don't care because you're an image bearer who's loved by God. And because I'm loved by God, I can extend that to you, period. The greatest hindrance to loving others isn't their unlovableness, but my unwillingness. So as we close, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring things back to kind of where we started. God's word calls us to love others. You've heard that this morning. You've seen that in John, and you've seen what it's like when we don't. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that you are loved by God? Do you believe that the holy God of the universe who created everything loves you intensely? Not that he tolerates you or he's civil toward you, but that he loves you. Because I know some of you, you feel so unworthy. You feel so unlovable. You look at your past and you go, no way. You look at those thoughts that are in your head and you go, no way. You go at all this stuff and you go, mm, God can't love me. God, I pray that that, would, that reality would sink into our hearts very deeply. And that would change the way we think about not just ourselves, but about our world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.